Hi. Morning, everybody. So um, I'm going to go a little bit off script here. I uh, just want to thank you all for uh, being here this morning. And the reason I'm saying that, is, unlike other Sundays, is as you all know, we were supposed to be or are experiencing a tropical storm right now. So I want to begin by just praying because it occurs to me we all are here by choice, right? And it's a good choice. But in, in this situation, and it's really not raining that bad. Was it really ba- raining bad when you guys came in? Eh, a little bit. Um, so it might get worse, right? Might, might not, might stay the same. But I realize that there are other people out there that are going to have to deal with far worse situations and areas, first responders, utility workers, electrical, SD and G&E, government officials. They're going to be out there not because of choice, but because they're going to have to be helping uh, other people who b- will find themselves in a jam. So I want to spend a moment just praying, thanking the Lord for them and watching over them, and then we'll jump into it, yeah? So Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come gather and worship in a wonderful sanctuary. To my knowledge, there's no water dripping on anyone's head. We're comfortable, we're dry, and it just had some great uplifting music. But Lord, it also occurs to me that there's going to be people out there because they are uh, first responders. They are utility workers. They are rulers and officials who have to take care of a state of emergency and these things that come up. So we ask, Lord, you give them grace. uh, Give them patience, Lord, to deal with a population that can sometimes be erratic in these kinds of situations. Give them wisdom. And we thank you for all those. And particularly our brothers and sisters who are in our own congregation, maybe a few of them are out there right now, we ask that you'd be with them and use them as a witness of Christ in in this situation. In Jesus' name, amen. So... So I, I heard a couple days ago we've got this hurricane, Hurricane Hillary, tropical storm. And, you know, coming from Hawaii, I don't care. I mean, I, I go to the beach in hurricanes because that's when you got good waves. And it occurred to me that um, there are two kinds of people out there. There are people like me that will crash in the ditch of indifference. I'm like, ah, whatever, you know what I mean? COVID, I didn't care. Well, I did, but, you know, that's just my personality type. I don't worry until the, the clouds roll up like a scroll and Jesus comes back. Then I get concerned. But otherwise, I'm just whatever, right? By the way, that's not a good response, generally speaking. I'm not saying that's a good thing. That's just the way I am. I crash in the ditch of indifference. There are others, though, on the other side, they crash in the ditch of panic, you know. Uh, my son, he, my second-born works at Trader Joe's, and he was telling me that yesterday there was all kinds of panic buying going on, and somebody rolled up to his register with ice cream and 15 bottles of wine, right? <laughs> I was like... I guess your plan is to drink yourself through the next couple of days. But I told, I said, hey, man, that, that tells you everything you need to know about that individual. So, and there's other kinds of panic buying that was more wise than that. But for me, I'm always the kind of person that likes to know, I, I love watching people, um, what's going on underneath? Yeah, what's going on underneath? So, so for those of us like me who crash in the ditch of indifference, there's probably a cynicism, been there, done that, nothing ever bad happens. Maybe misplaced trust in the security of the world as we know it and we don't care, right? Or maybe lack of compassion. That's certainly all true. On the other side, the people who crash in the ditch of panic, it, it just reveals that, man, our world... And by the way, don't judge anyone who didn't show up and say, oh, I know what ditch you crash into, right? That's not what I'm saying here. Is that what it reveals is just like right under the surface, there's so much fear and insecurity and anxiousness that just takes like water from the sky and people go out buying dozens of bottles of wine or something, right? Both of those are not healthy responses, right? 
So you may be a Christian and you crash in the ditch of panic or the crash in the ditch of indifference. Neither one of those is good, right? And neither one of those is a witness of Christ. And so I kind of thought this is a really appropriate topic because one of the things that discipleship should do is to kind of even us out, right? Like the answer is not if you're in the indifferent to go into panic mode and if you're panic mode become indifferent. That's not the answer. That's a lot of times what the world will give us though, right? It's the, the opposite. The, the, the third way of the gospel is I should neither have a cynicism or trust in the way things are always because of man's technology or whatever, nor should I panic at the first sight of danger. The Bible has this concept of walking circumspectly. Constantly the Bible talks about being aware. There's the parable of the prepared virgins, right, the ten virgins. Not to be wise, but to be prepared. And, and just going through our lives with such a circumspect understanding that I neither trust uh, the past experience or technology or the way things are always been, nor do I trust panic supply, buying, and hoarding, but I trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I'm there, I can be a dynamic witness to a world that's either indifference or in panic. So I think discipleship is a good topic for this morning. So that's the value we're talking about. And sorry if that wasn't all that engaging of an introduction because I just made that up off the top of my head. So here's value number three. We're going through the church values this month and we're talking. And again, I want to stress, just because people aren't here doesn't mean they're the panic ones. Don't say that, okay? Like don't, don't even talk about that. I kind of even regret saying that, but... I should save these comments for Lord's Supper service, not Sunday morning. Okay, value number three, making disciples. We will live with a focus on mission. A disciple is one who follows and obeys the master as a student and fulfills the master's will. Discipleship is holistic. It renews the mind, the intellect. It restores the soul, the emotions, and it transforms the life, behaviors, this value helps our Christian faith remain on task to the Great Commission and from becoming merely religious socialism. So, yeah, so I, I put the word so, socialism, I don't mean in a political sense, but like it keeps us from being a church where it's just about hanging out and having good friends, right? That's what this value is going to help us do or keep on task about. So a few years ago, we actually did a series on discipleship called Discipleship Convictions and where we literally asked and answered the five questions, the who, the what, the where, the how, and the why of discipleship. So we spent five weeks doing that, whereas in this series we're only, only going to speak about discipleship once. So this morning, it's not so much the mechanics of discipleship per se, but just kind of the essence of it. What I, what I hope to do that this morning's message whets your appetite to want to know more. Like, so, so how do we make disciples? Where do we make disciples? Why do we make disciples? And so I want to direct you to our website, and you can just find that series where we answer all those questions. This morning, I want to talk about the essence of discipleship, the way we think about it, so that if you're looking for a church or you're wondering what we are as about, and you're part of our our church, you know what this value means. And so that's, there's three parts to it. The nature, the extent, and the practice of discipleship. The nature, the extent, and the practice of discipleship. So there's a lot there. So let's jump into it. Looking at the first one, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. And if you're, you're going to use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 924 in the pew Bibles. So Colossians 1, 28 to 29. And, and I throw this out there, I've said it before, but if, if you're kind of wondering a, a good acronym to find those particular books, I use the phrase, go eat popcorn, 
right? So you know Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then you'll be able to find it. Okay, so this is what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Him, speaking of Christ, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So here in this verse, here in uh, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, we learn six things about the nature of discipleship. Paul talks about the focus, the content, the skill, the goal, the challenge, and the energy for discipleship. Paul begins, and by the way, uh, I, I know I speak pretty fast regularly, but this might be a little bit faster than normal. I apologize, but that's just the way it is. Um, you can slow it down on the sermon when you listen to it back again. Paul talks about the focus of discipleship. Notice he says, him we proclaim. Jesus Christ is all the proclamation. That's what our discipleship is to focus upon. Focus on. The 18th century revivalist George Whitfield said, there, be, there may be men who preach the gospel better than I, but there is no man who has a better gospel to preach than I, right? Because George Whitfield preached all about Christ. It goes without saying that Christ must be the focus of our discipleship efforts. Christ and Christ alone. Not, not our, 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 our particular values, not our politics, not our evangelical culture, but Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the glory of Christ. That's why one of my favorite ways to disciple people, it's, it's, it's very simple, is I just get together with people and read through the Gospels. Now, to have a little bit of structure, I usually ask for, we go through each chapter asking four questions. What does this chapter teach us about Christ? What does this chapter teach us about us? What does this chapter teach us about our relationship with Christ? And what does this chapter teach us about how awesome Christ is? Right? Because it's all about Christ. And, and in doing that, it may seem very simplistic, but you, in a sense, cover all the basic discipleship essentials. When you learn about Christ, I'll never forget, when I was a new, brand new Christian, my drummer Asa told me, you want to know the Father, learn the Son. He was 19 years old, wise young man. And he says, you want to know the Father, learn all about the Son. Everything about the Bible is about the Son. The Old Testament is about the Son. The Son makes the te Old Testament come alive. It's all about Jesus Christ. When you learn about him, you want to talk with him. You want to be like him. You want to love his people because he loves them. You want to read God's word because you realize he is God's word. And so when you focus on Christ, all the basic discipleship parts of it, prayer, service, the value of the church, Bible reading, start to come into play. Christ, as Paul says, is always the focus of our discipleship. We would call it this way in our counseling classes. He is the great maturity ideal. Do you want to have a target of what you ought to be like in life? Christ is the maturity ideal of the Christian life. So Paul says, here's the focus of our discipleship. And next he gives us the content, right? He says, both warning and teaching everyone. And the two words that Paul uses here, nutheteo and didasco, uh, one is, it's kind of the good and the bad, and maybe more like the positive and the negatives of living our lives, now, if you were here two weeks ago, we talked about this briefly in value number one. One of the subsets was the call to change and growth, right? We turn from our sin, we turn to righteousness. We turn from death to life in Christ, right? We turn from the darkness to the light. 
That, that is the pattern of the Christian life, both returning from the negative, turning through the positive. This is our pattern. This is why at Christ Community Church, we promote both discipleship and counseling. This is why if you've ever gotten counseling here or been to any of our classes, why our counseling sounds a lot like discipleship. And while our discipleship is a lot like our counseling, because the two are the same sides of the same coin, or two sides of the same coin, right? In one sense, look at it this way. Counseling is the nutheteo part, the helping us to put off the old man, to turn from darkness, to turn from death. And discipleship is the positive stuff of, of putting on the new man, turning to Christ, turning to the light, both the negative and the positive. And so that's kind of how we, we practically, not, obviously all things break down at some point, but that's how we practically look at how those two relate. We need ways to think about how do we put off the things that hold us back and how do we put on things that make us more like Christ. And so that's how we uh, differentiate maybe counseling and discipleship. The point is we need both. And good discipleship includes both of those facts here. As Paul says here, Christ is the, the focus and the content is both the warning and the teaching, everyone. Which is why you can understand why Paul says when it comes to discipleship, it does require some skill, doesn't it? Look at his next phrase. He says, with all wisdom. Because the reality is discipleship, it's not a one-size-fits-all. I mean, just, just look at the diversity of individuals in this room and you realize that it, it, this is why all of us need to be about the task of making disciples. It takes all kinds of people to reach all kinds of people, right? No one of us can disciple everyone, but everyone can disciple someone. And that's how discipleship works in the church. After all, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, 20, Ted read it in a scripture reading earlier, Jesus doesn't just want them to be disciples. What's he tell them? He tells them to go make disciples. That's what discipleship is. Now, practically speaking, for some of you, this might mean that you learn a little bit more about the gospel, that you learn more about the Christian faith so that your warnings are accurate and your teaching is rich with hope in Christ, right? So some of you just need to, need to learn more stuff about Christianity. If that's you, I want to encourage you, just join one of our foundation classes on a Sunday morning or the classes that meet throughout the week. For others of you, maybe the, the issue is you need to learn more about the people around you in their unique circumstances and situations so that you can love them well. Right? So for you, it's not an information, at least content thing. Maybe it's an information about people around you. If that's you, I want to encourage you. Get in a community group. Get involved in some kind of ministry and community here at the church so that you can know other people and other people can get to know you. And so you can grow in wisdom and understanding of their situations and their challenges so that your warning and your teaching can be helpful and edifying, right? Still yet, for others of you, maybe it's both, right? You're just not sure about the gospel or how to love people well and bring those two together. If that's you, well, I just encourage you. Just take one of our biblical counseling classes that we offer throughout the year. The point is... To disciple takes a certain amount of skill, right? Paul says, with all wisdom. And, and, and wisdom isn't a zero-sum game. There's all kinds of wisdom. There's, there's theoretical, theological wisdom. 
There's human people wisdom, the human documents. There's wisdom of knowing how to bring those together. And in each of those areas, as a church, we're structuring ourselves so that we can equip you, so that you can say with Paul, with all wisdom, thinking about discipleship. And then Paul also moves on. Look at the next phrase. He gives us the goal of discipleship. What's the goal of all this? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. So the word Paul's talking about here, mature, it means lacking nothing, complete, absolutely sufficient. This word mature is actually the adjective form of the verb tetelestai. Now, tetelestai, some of you may know this word because this was one of the last words, if not the last word, uttered from Christ on the cross when he cries out, it is finished, tetelestai. In other words, the work's complete, it's perfect, nothing needs to be added to it, it is over. And Paul is saying that's the goal of our discipleship, that we might present people mature, that they're complete in Christ. They're fulfilled in Christ. They're, they're perfect in Christ. And what we mean practically is that their hope, their desires, their meaning and fulfillment is found in Christ. You see, Paul, one of the greatest missionaries of the church, he was not just interested in converts. Paul was laser focused to make disciples. And the difference between a convert and a disciple is that a convert sees Christ as useful in their lives. But a disciple sees Christ as beautiful. And admittedly, I'm, I'm riffing off of Jonathan Edwards here. He says, a convert sees Christ as a means to another end, but a disciple sees Christ as the end of all they've ever desired. And that's the difference. We are to make disciples, not merely converts. Now, as great as all this is, notice the next phrase. Paul recognizes, though, that there is a challenge to making disciples. Verse 29, look at it, it says, For this I toil, struggling, right? And Paul uses two vivid words to, to capture this. One denotes a labor that leaves you wearied and completely exhausted. The other, the second word, struggle, we get from the Greek word agonizomai. Now, if you're listening, you may actually hear an English word in that uh, confusing Greek term. Agonizomai is where we get the English word agony. Agony. Now, that sounds dramatic because when we think of something as being agony, that's pretty harsh. And, and I guess there's some legitimacy to that. But in the original writing, the way they used to use agonizomai, agony, was to describe the discipline and the effort of an athlete that was training themselves to be the best they could be. Have any of you ever been athletes? Right? You, you know the sacrifice, the, the effort you put forward so that you can be the best you can be at your sport. And Paul is saying is that the point is making disciples is going to be something that has to be worked at. And we're all going to have to exert ourselves to some degree. Right? We're all going to have to exert ourselves. If we're going to be making disciples, it will be a struggle in some way. And practically speaking, this will look different for all of us. What we all have to deal with is our own just stuff in your life. Who here 
does not have struggles, trials, sorrows, as well as joys and victories and blessings. Our lives are a mix of that, every single one of us. So not only do we have our own stuff that we're working with, but when we come alongside someone else, we're going to be engaging in their stuff too, right? Good and not so good. And then just practically speaking, just the conflicting schedules of a frenzied world we live in, just finding time to get together can be a challenge. Then there's personality differences, life stage differences, capacity, skill, not to mention, if we're being honest, a sense of feeling inadequate, insecure. Who am I to talk to them about Jesus? What do I have to show, right? Those are things we're going to have to work through. Temperament, if you're an introvert, It's hard, especially if the person you're working with might be an extrovert or vice versa. You might have nothing in common with that individual, but you are committed to do spiritual good in their lives. It's going to require something of us. That's what discipleship is. Paul recognizes, he says, I toil, I struggle, but here we come full circle. Paul reminds us we can do this, and in fact, we will want to do this. Why? Because Paul says it right here in the last phrase in these verses, that Christ is powerfully working within him to do this thing with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Yeah, it's going to be tough. But I hope it's a reassuring thought that Christ says himself, I will enable you to affect the ends I want to see happen. The real question is, are we willing to be that, that vessel, to be obedient, to be used that way? Paul says, it is Christ working in us. And that's reassuring. It is not dependent upon you, but the power of Christ through you that matters. You just need to be a willing vessel. Yeah, you need to grow in some skill. Yes, there's a challenge, there's a struggle, all that's true. But at the end of the day, the energy to do it, the power to do it, comes from Christ. Now, before we leave uh, Colossians 1, there there is a, a way of application, kind of as a corrective here, that I found in verse 29. If it's, the, if it's the case that Paul says, look, this is a challenge, but I'm able to meet the challenge because of the energy of Christ working within me, then I thought that would mean then that the absence of any desire to struggle to make disciples, according to Colossians 1.29, can be an evidence that Christ is not working in me. Does that make sense? If Paul says, this is a challenge, but I can meet the challenge because it's the power of Christ working in me, the energy of Christ working in me, then it stands to reason an absence of any desire to work to see other people mature and grow in Christ can be evidence that Christ is not working in me. You see where I'm getting at? You see that connection there? Friends, if you consider yourself a Christian, right, and yet you feel no burden at all to do spiritual good to others, to see others flourish in Christ, I would say that that can be an evidence that you need to reexamine the profession by which you are resting your trust in. Right? And this, this is not just me. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul makes it really clear. Examine yourselves. Make sure you are actually what you say you are. And the reason being is, man, it is so easy to coast on cultivated Christian civilities in a, in a culture like ours, right? And you don't want that. You, you want to be bearing fruit. You want to be re- assured that you are regenerate. And one example of that is that there is this desire to struggle to do spiritual good to others. 
because this is the point. Disciples, disciple. Let me say that again. Disciples, disciple, right? That's just what we do. Now, you're going to do it differently than I do it, for sure, but you will be doing it nonetheless because of the energy of Christ working towards, in you, working towards that end, making disciples. So that's the nature of it. The focus, the content, the skill, the goal, the challenge, and energy. Let's take a look at the extent of discipleship next. And for this, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12. It's probably a pretty popular, well-known verse. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And then while you're flipping over to Romans 12, verse 2, I want to call you to Galatians chapter 5. So keep your finger in Romans 2. And while you're looking for that one, also open up to Galatians chapter 5. It's another well-known verse. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the, the, what, what Paul, Paul makes the point, and then I'm going to kind of skip down to an application of that point that's uh, relevant to the, the point I'm making. A lot of points there. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, this is what Paul says, and they're going to jump down to verse 9. Do not be conformed to this world. Oh, by the way, let me, let me say. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read these texts of Scripture. I want you to remember the content And then I'm going to show you how they tie into the point, right? So that's that's what we're doing here. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Skip down to to verse 9 of Romans 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Hold that content in your mind. Go to Galatians chapter 5. We'll just look at two verses there. Verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So I use this word extent here for this point. Because I want to emphasize something that we all know, if you've been a Christian for a while, but functionally we can easily forget. And that is the making of disciples means that every aspect of of the person gets discipled. When I say every aspect of the person, I mean by that every constituent part that we all have, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, right? This is, this, is, this is not disputable. This is how human beings are broken down. We have our cognitions, our minds, our intellect, our reasoning, our thought life. We have our emotions, our feelings, our desires, our affections. We have our volition, our wills, actions, and behaviors, 
Did you notice in the reading of Romans 12 and Galatians 5, every single one of those is being discussed? Right? That, that's in, I mean, there are many more scriptures we could have looked at, but those are two case examples of every aspect of the person, from our intellect to our emotions and to our will, is being discussed as we are talking about becoming like Christ. So when we speak of making disciples... We mean by that the renewal of the mind, as Paul says, that's literally out of Romans 12, right? Our intellect's being transformed. The restoring of our souls, and we're kind of using soul as a, as a, a simile for the emotional life, the in, interior life that we have. And then the transformation of the life, our wills, our actions, the way we live out of that, uh, our emotions and our, our, our cognitions. All three of those, can I suggest to you in your discipleship, are equally important. The danger, however, is we tend to focus on maybe one or two of those. And as a result, because they are good things and necessary in our discipleship of the Christ, we can tend to think that is discipleship, but the result is something less than Christian. So, for example, if we solely uh, emphasize the renewal of the mind to the neglect of the other two, we have something less than Christianity. And what the church becomes really is, a, is a, an organization for religious nerds who like to talk about some ancient Middle East culture and their arcane rituals and practices and their charismatic, charismatic leaders. Christianity is reduced to little more than just the philosophy of life. On the other hand, if we solely focus on the restoring of our souls, our emotions, to the neglect of the other two, when we become all about emotional health, therapeutic wellness, if our small groups are just support groups, if self-esteem is more important than self-sacrifice, comfort more important than obedience, then again, we have something less than Christianity. And a church becomes a little more than a center for religious clients who like to gaze at their navels and talk out their emotions, right? Christianity in that scenario is little more than a therapy. So the one is just the philosophy, the other is just the therapy. But if we also focus solely on the transformation of life, activism, civic and political engagement, works of charity, no matter how good, again, we have something less than Christianity, the church then becomes little more than an activist group for the religious, and it's all about the next righteous cause. Christianity in that scenario is little more than an ideology. So one is too intellectual, the other is too emotional, and the last is too political. And there is a lot of Christianity out there like that, isn't there? And you can easily crash into one of those three ditches. If you're a regular at CCC, I know I've just, I, I just went beyond two ditches. Now we have a third ditch, right? There are, more, there are a lot of ditches out there we have to avoid. But you have all seen a Christianity that emphasized one to the neglect of the others. But here's the thing. True discipleship requires all three of those. So it's not as if we want to pick one over the others, but all of them. An emphasis on the mind, the soul, and the life. Because not only do they balance each other out, not only do having all three balance each other out, but they make the others more attractive, more powerful, more winsome than they would be without the others. So you have a, an intellect that is warmed by kindness 
and activism that is purposeful and thought out, and emotions that are channeled into loving actions. That is a powerful witness, right? That is a, an attractive combination. We want to be discipled in all three of those. Ask yourself this, what area of your life, in your thought life, in your emotions, or the way you are actually applying that needs to grow in Christ-like submission? We all have to submit those to the Lordship of Christ. Not just what I know, not just how I feel, not just how I choose to live, but all of those under the Lordship of Christ. We have to be discipled in all three. Let me squeeze one last one in. The practice of discipleship. For this, I want you to go to Ephesians 5. So just if you're in Galatians, go over a couple pages to Ephesians chapter 5. Looking at verse 15. This is what Paul writes as we talk about the practice of discipleship. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. This is some of what we talked about at the very beginning, right? Some of what I talked about earlier about the, the ditch of indifference or the ditch of panic. Making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Therefore, verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I love how the old um, King James Version, if you have maybe a new King James Bible, how they translate ex agorazo, which is the word um, that the phrase we have, making the best use of our time. Ex agorazo, in the new King James translation, is called redeeming the time. It's actually more closely the original word to redeem the time. What it means is to snap up every opportunity. And in snapping up every opportunity that's yours, in a sense, buying back time. So that word has a big range of meanings like rescue, set free, redemption, or redeem. And what Paul is doing here in Ephesians 5, he talks about redeeming time, buying back time. And then for the rest of the book of Ephesians, what is he doing? He's talking about discipling relationships, right? Do you notice that? So he says, he makes the case, we have to redeem time. And then he talks about discipleship. But notice there's, there's kind of a priority, isn't there? He starts off with husbands and wives and family units, and then he moves into work, and then he moves into the world. And so, so there's a discipleship priority. What, what you, you would not be hearing me correctly if you only hear, okay, if I'm going to be a Christian at Christ Community Church, i got to get out there and start discipling people, and you abandon your, your closest sphere of influence, like your family if you're married or your spouse if you're married. You know. And so on the other side, though, you, okay, two ditches, right? So one ditch, I'm out there discipling everybody, and my family, my closest spheres of influence are floundering. The other ditch, and I've seen people on both ditches, the other ditch is, man, it's all about, I got, I got to disciple my family. That's all this is about is my family, all them, nope, I'm not responsible for them, just my kids, my wife, my family. See, that's a wrong ditch too. Paul gives us the order of priority. Yes, this in the closest sphere of influence but live life in such a way that you have capacity that you can start bringing people around you outside of that closest sphere of influence, right? So there's a balance here. It's not the ditch of everyone to the neglect of your family, nor is it the ditch of your family to the neglect of everyone else. There is a third way. And this is why Paul says, redeeming time, buying it back, snatching it up, is a, an act of wisdom that is so important. Listen to J. Oswald Sanders from his classic, Spiritual Leadership. He says this, 
The character and career of a young person, this applies to anyone, but it was kind of written to young men, depends on how he or she, young men and women, spends spare time. The way we employ the surplus hours after provision has been made for work, meals, and sleep will determine if we develop into mediocre or powerful people. The best use of one's life, one's time, is to spend it for something that will outlast it. That's just straight up good wisdom from another generation. Friends, discipleship can be from an older to a younger person, a younger to an older person. It can be peer-to-peer. It can be formal. It can be informal. It can be one-on-one. It can be the many to the one, as in the case of the local church's discipleship ministry to each believer. Friend, have have you ever stopped to think that just by being committed to a local body of Christians, you are being discipled? Have you ever stopped to think about that? That that was one of the most powerfulest discipleship tools in my life was the local church. I didn't know anything about Christianity, so I didn't know anything about discipling relationships. I didn't walk in and say, would you disciple me? I didn't know that was a thing. But I watched men love their wives. I watched men lead in prayer. I watched men preach the gospel. And for a young man that came from a radically dysfunctional home, that was revolutionary. And so all of us, me, Byron, Ace, Frankie, all of us would watch the men in our church. And we were discipled by them. The rhythm and routines of our corporate life together. The responsibilities of of our obligations and joys and privileges of caring for each other. As we weep and rejoice with each other at our Lord's Supper services. As we sing to each other and with each other about the great acts of God every Sunday. All of these are discipling you. Friend, if you are benefiting from the discipleship of this church, doesn't it stand to reason that maybe you could benefit someone else in doing the same for them? And I know I've said a lot, a ton, very fast, about the nature of discipleship, the extent of discipleship, and it can seem all confusing and like, okay, there was six points there and three points there. I got nine points. I give up, right? Let me just make it really simple at this point, right? Let me just give you one line of what discipleship is. It's just this. Help others follow Jesus. That's it. In his book, Discipling, Mark Dever, it's a little book, it's about this size, so to prove you how little it is, look at that. You can read it in less than two hours, great use of time. All of you who wasted your time watching Barbie could have been (laughs) reading this book, right? Says this, discipling, you're free in Christ to waste your time that way, I'm just saying, but (laughs) discipling is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. That's it. You know, I talked about the goal, the focus, the nature, the challenge, the skill, all that, I know. But when you get down to it, it's just you wanting to do spiritual good to someone else, to help them follow Jesus. Friend, who can you do spiritual good to this day, this week, this month, this year? Who can you do spiritual good to? We can all do it. If, if you've been a Christian for just six months, find somebody who's been a Christian for just two months and disciple them. That's how it works. 
If you've been a Christian for six years, find someone who's been a Christian for two years, disciple them, rinse and repeat till Jesus comes back. It's not that complicated. That's what discipleship is. Friends, are you making the most of your time? Now, I'm not talking about managing your time, right? That's a big popular thing now in, in business circles. We've got to manage our time. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm not asking you to manage your time. I'm asking you to redeem the time. Are you redeeming your time? As a church, making disciples is something we want to be about. Will you help us do that? Because it takes all of us to disciple all of us. Let me just end. Real three quick things you can do. If you're thinking like, okay, I want to do this. I don't know where to start. Here are three suggestions. Number one, join a community group. Serve in some kind of ministry or get to know at least three people or families in this church with the intention to love them, to serve them, and do them spiritual good. Right? Just simple as that. Simple as organic thing as that. Be part of a community group. If that's too much for you, serve in a ministry. If that's too much for you, you can at least get to know three people, right? And then intend to bless them. Don't get to know them so that you get something from them, but you want to give something to them. That's discipleship, right? That's number one. Number two, have intentional spiritual conversations with each other. It doesn't have to be weird. Don't make this weird. It can be as simple as asking someone, what did you think of the sermon? How were you convicted? What was encouraging to you? Right? How is your life being changed by the preaching of God's word? Okay, that, that might seem a little bit more hard to say, but you say, what did you think of the sermon? And why? Like, I always love it when people tell me, hey, great sermon, Pastor. And, and I appreciate that. I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. But I love to stop them in their tracks because some of it's automated, right? Because what are they going to say? Oh, that sucks. See you next week. They're not going to do that, right? But even when they do, I ask the same question and stop them in their tracks. Here's the question. What was so great about it? What would, you know, the, because I want them to engage, right? So just have spiritual conversations. As simple as that. What would you think of the sermon? And why? What convicted you? What encouraged you? How can I learn the way you're learning? You know, simple. Have intentional spiritual conversations. Don't just beeline to the donut table and say, oh, which donut do you like? Oh, wasted opportunity, right? Intentional spiritual conversations. Last so one, join a community group. Serve in a ministry. Get to know people. Two, have intentional spiritual conversations. Three, and lastly, and maybe most importantly, actually, maybe start here. Pray for God to break your heart for the people around you. Guys, I know your stories, and there's a lot of joy and victory, but there's a lot of heartache and sorrow. It's not too far from the fact to say that I preach weekly to people sitting in a pool of their own tears. There are people around you that need your ministry. Pray for God to break your heart for the people around you and then pray that God gives you the courage to do something about it. It's not that hard. Friends, if you get that one, this is the concluding point, you get that one and you get it good, everything else I said, piece of cake, duck soup, as we say in Hawaii. You pray that God breaks your heart for the people around you, and you pray that God gives you the courage to do something about it, and everything I said, you will do masterfully. It's as simple as that. Let's pray. Father, we want to make disciples. Father, we want to make disciples of all nations, but we also make, want to make disciples of the people in our neighborhood, the people in the pew next to us. People make disciples here in South Orange County. 
And Lord, it is clear how you need all of us. This is not something for the select few. We need all hands on deck. That's why this is a value of our church. I pray, Lord, that it would resonate with people here, that they would ask themselves, how are they redeeming the time, pouring their lives out to do spiritual good for others, not in big, magnificent, glorious ways, but in the mundane, every day, doing dishes together, talking about the gospel, pulling weeds, asking advice from a saint to saint, that we might be more like like Jesus Christ, the very focus, the, our maturity ideal. We'll pray and ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.